0: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Uh, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt uh, and I'm joined uh, by my dad, John Wyatt. And uh, continuing our conversation from last week, also by Sarah Foote. Thanks to you both for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Last week, we we talked about your experience as a palliative care doctor, uh, the kind of history, a bit of the history and the philosophy that's behind that as a specialism, what it's like, how how faith and spirituality intersects with that. And today, we really wanted to move the conversation forward a little bit to to how palliative care intersects with the debates around euthanasia and assisted suicide, also known as assisted dying. Um, uh, you'll be obviously even more aware than I am, but but here in the UK, there was a renewed push to try and Introduce a form of assisted dying. Uh, just last year, last autumn, uh, in in Parliament, um, there was a there was a bill was introduced to the House of Lords. Um, John, you did some kind of work around this. Do you want to briefly explain what that bill proposed and what kind of response it found?
2: Sure. So it's just by way of background. Here in the UK, at the moment, it's completely illegal for a doctor uh, or anyone else to deliberately, intentionally kill someone or hasten their death. So although it's entirely legal and appropriate to stop treatment, life-sustaining treatment, if everyone agrees that that's the right thing to do, uh, the the current law draws a a very clear line between that and intentional killing using lethal poisons. Um, and what is being proposed is that the law should be changed here in the UK as in it indeed has in many countries across the world, um, to allow doctors to uh, prescribe um, lethal medications for patients who with a, a who meet particular criteria, they have to be competent, in other words legally aware of their decisions, they have to be, uh, give a voluntary and free uh, desire to, to kill themselves, uh, that to feel their lives is not worth living. And they have, in the UK law, proposed that they had to have a terminal illness with less than six months to live. And so there was debate as to whether to legalise um, what was called assisted dying, doctors giving lethal poisons to terminally ill patients. And I um, I, I was involved along with a number of other people in trying to oppose this um, legislation and um, we listened to what was a very high quality debate uh, which, which went on in the House of Lords uh, over the space of an entire day. I think there were over 100 contributors, um, some arguing passionately for uh, changing the law, some arguing passionately against. Um, But what I found very striking and and also rather disturbing was the number of, to be honest, rather elderly um, peers who who recounted stories of their friends or relatives or people close to them who died, who clearly had an appalling death. Uh, Sometimes they described people screaming out in agony. They said they pleaded with with the doctors or the nurses to do something and and the professional said no we're not allowed we can't give any more drugs and there were these repeated stories gave the impression that um, palliative medicine as it exists today is pretty powerless uh, when it comes to controlling people's pain and symptoms at the end of life and I just wonder whether you got that impression Sarah and, and how you responded to that
0: yeah it's it's really really hard because um you hear these stories of people dying in in pain and um, miserable and it's heartbreaking and whatever side of the debate you're on that's the sort of first response and i I don't doubt they're happening and i think um, where we've had the health and social care bill more recently actually recognizing that as a as i said last week that palliative care isn't currently accessible to everyone that should be one of our first focuses is is uh, making sure people do have access to palliative care because things like pain is actually not one of the more difficult things that we manage um it not everyone dies in pain and it's certainly also i think uh, something to remember is we have these awful stories and and it is heartbreaking, but it's also not not common, it's not the the reality. I, I see lots of patients die and lots of patients die really quite comfortably. Um and that's because they've had access to the right palliative care, they've um you know, been supported in their physical um pain relief, um, but they've also been supported in um their their emotional and, and psychological well being, um, supported with um spiritual care and that's something that is very achievable and I guess there will always be some exceptions but actually caring for someone in a in a loving fashion um with all the um all the medicines, um, all the things that we have now in, in the modern day, we can help people to, to die comfortably and die well.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the impressions I have is that the, the, the general lay understanding about um, people suffering at the end of life is that the principal reason why people suffer at the end of life is because of physical pain, it's because of overwhelming agony uh, created by the disease, by cancer, or or whatever it is, and um, and I think what is understood by people and certainly certainly matches my own experience is that actually that physical pain, by and large, is relatively easy to control with modern uh, methods, modern drugs, modern uh, techniques of of, of 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 controlling pain. What is much more common but also much more difficult is these other types of pain psychological pain a relational pain whether a really broken uh, damaged uh, relationships uh, and and also spiritual or existential pain people feeling a sense of guilt or a a sense of the meaninglessness of life uh, and and it's often these kind of issues which are the real source of suffering as people come to the end of their lives um, does that fit with your experience sarah
0: yeah i think there's often a lot of fear around uh, pain and symptoms and i think that's because as a society we don't See people die. Um, You know, we've really medicalised it. It happens in hospitals. It happens away um, from homes, and so people don't get to uh, see a normal death. I've 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 had uh, relatives pull the emergency buzzer when someone's taking their last breaths because they've just not seen it before and they're not confident with what's going on. Um, And then actually, the 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 real difficulties or the harder things to manage are. um, people who've got broken relationships and don't know how to um you know th- aren't going to be able to have another conversation with someone because they they can't um manage it um or people who are, are really scared of of losing control or being dependent um that's something that's that's quite common um and as you say people who uh, angry, uh, understandably so. You know, why is it me? Why have? Why am I the one that's dying? You know, I've done everything right. Um, is it because I? You know, I smoked, um, or is it? And and you know, it'll be people who will question things that have absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, I say smoking as an example, but actually, uh, I had a patient die recently, and and they thought it was because they'd smoked. and I was like, it's not related. It really isn't. I mean, I suppose smoking's not good for you, but in that case, it it, it wasn't related, and that's that's harder um, and that's where time with people, um, being able to listen, I often think of palliative medicine, our kind of super skill is just being able to listen to people um, and them being able to share their troubles can be really helpful.
1: One of the things the people who advocate for changing the law often say is that there is a huge untapped demand from the public for this. And there are various surveys that suggest that when you phrase the question in a certain way, you know, upwards of 80% of people agree that there should be the option for doctors to prescribe kind of life-ending drugs and various things. In your experience, is, is it common for patients who are dying to kind of request that kind of currently illegal intervention from you as their physician?
0: No, it's not common at all. And um I don't think so first of all, I think um we often think I think if you if you word the question to people who haven't considered the issues and say, Well, if someone else is in pain, would you want them to have the option of of ending their life? Um, you think, Well, yeah, you know, why would I want someone to experience pain when we could we could stop it? Um and if you haven't considered the issues I think that it's an understandable response Um the reality is, is actually um, there's two things. Sometimes patients will say to me they just want their life to be over. Um, sometimes they say it and hope that in some way I can assist their death and uh, often that is um, said by people who might be at the very end anyway, they kind of sort of say they've had enough of life. And actually, we find they die quite a short time later. And I think there's a sort of. Um, our oh, people often talk about battling cancer and trying to, you know, make the most of everything. And sometimes you do just get very tired of it all as you come to the end. Um, and actually, as long as those patients are comfortable um, and loved and reassured that we're not extending their life, that we're not now doing anything that's going to prolong anything, they that that can bring a real comfort and to know that they won't be alone. Um, Also patients can say it when they're in pain, you know, um, if you can think about a time when you've been in absolute agony, the things you'd have said to make it stop and if you've got something that you're dying of anyway, you know, you'd want it to stop. Um, Patients have sometimes come into hospital like that and actually with good pain relief or good symptom management, I have seen that turn around. I've seen patients cry and beg me uh, to end their life and actually, one guy particularly I remember was just miserable and within uh, two or three days was crying with relief that he was going home to spend time with his wife um, because we managed his symptoms and actually they were quite straightforward and he got to go home and have good time with her. Um, so I think that's one aspect of it in terms of the people that ask but then you have all the other people who don't ask, who do just one every minute they're alive to live as well as they can do and are actually really scared really scared that um, we're going to make assumptions about their life um, that as, as as doctors we've quote written them off um, one of my patients every time I frown in her presence she thinks I'm writing her off and I'm like no I'm just thinking I'm just thinking of how we're going to sort out this problem I'm not writing you off um, because she, cause pe- cause once people have got the label of a palliative diagnosis they worry that we, we're going to give up on them um, and reassuring them that actually no that's, that's just that's only where my job begins is really important um, and then we meet the patients who or, or families where as doctors we have to discuss what are called do not um, attempt resuscitation so DNAR discussions and that's something we do is uh, separate from palliative care that is a discussion we do when um, we are concerned that if a patient's heart were to stop um, we wouldn't try to get it started again because we wouldn't, didn't think we don't think it will be successful, and it will cause them harm, and it won't give them a dignified death. Um, I say this because, as doctors, we are really bad at having these conversations. We can often think we've done a really good job, but actually, patients come out of these conversations terrified that we're not going to look after them properly, we're not going to care for them, um, and that's DNAR, which we're quite familiar with Um, but that can really break down the doctor-patient relationship and I worry that with assisted dying a big concern is it will really break down the trust with patients and doctors because patients won't know whether we're actually pursuing assisted dying or whether that's what we think is best because why on earth would you live with you know their symptoms or their life Um, and it, it, it will undermine that trust they have in us.
2: Yeah, it's certainly one of my great concerns as well, because as you say, to be able to, you know, when you're so desperately vulnerable and and you feel out of control, you desperately want to be able to trust this professional and and believe that they are genuinely acting in your best interests. And uh, the worry that actually they have a vested interest, you know, that that they've just come from another patient where they actually helped them die, and that that might change the way that they they treat you uh, I, I, I think is, is is very strong and I, I'm very proud of the fact that we can say you know the medical profession is the one profession which is totally dedicated to protecting and preserving life and, and you should be able to feel totally confident when you're in the care of a, of a medical professional that they're not going to try and get rid of you not going to try and, and end your life prematurely
0: Listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable
1: i was going to say there's been quite a lot of debate within the medical profession certainly here in the uk about what doctors kind of stance should be on on these attempts to introduce assisted dying um, and as as I understand it the british medical association which is the kind of professional body for for doctors uh changed its stance in your experience do palliative care doctors kind of tend either direction pro or anti
0: um they can be pro or anti but the overwhelming majority are anti assisted dying uh and i think that's really um important if you look at the british medical association survey obviously the the kind of headline is that they went neutral um Actually, if you drill down into that, you see that a lot of the specialties, so the, the types of doctor that are pro assisted dying, are not those that are looking after those at the end of their life. It's um, peop- doctors that aren't very patient facing anymore, so tend to work more in labs um, or in radiology departments, um, some types of surgeon, and then also groups of doctors, so uh, medical students, for example, who uh, you know we go back to when we began this session talking about how in an ideal world you sort of think oh yeah that sounds like a good idea assisted dying that helps the people who need it you don't have to have it i think it's really interesting that those are the groups that seem to be quite supportive um but actually palliative medicine doctors um gps uh, geriatricians so those care- caring for elderly patients um cancer doctors they were all much more against it and i think that's because we can see that there's a better way um that actually there are some very vocal people in the in the news who, who really want it. But actually, we know that if we get a chance to see people, if we get a chance to have these conversations, that there's so many things that we can manage and people just don't know what we can do. Um, and also, we've got just this huge cohort of vulnerable people who won't know whether we're supposed to be we're doing assisted dying. and. Um, and also, we've got the, we'll have got we have the patients who are coerced into it and it might be that they are doing it because they think it's the right thing. I still I get patients almost on a daily basis who say to me, oh, you shouldn't be wasting your time with me. And I'm slightly confused by that because my job title is is palliative care. That is that I haven't got any other patients to say, I haven't got any that aren't dying. Um, Patients still have this real sense of the, you know, the NHS is in need, that they've got, you know, there must be much more urgent um, operations to do or um, patients that you can fix and get out of there, um, beds that can be freed up. Don't waste our time. Um, And that's really, really sad to think that people might think that's the right thing to do is to end their life. Um, People don't know what... um, Financial support there is, so they don't know what care support they're entitled to, so they worry that um, as they come to the end of their life, they might have to pay for everything or they can't pay for it, so they're just going to be home alone. Um, And then they sometimes think it's the best thing for their family because they don't want their family to be burdened by caring for them, and that's um, really difficult to tease out as a doctor um, to really get to know patients and their families well enough to be completely confident. That actually, if a patient's saying they want to end their life, it's not because they're trying to do the right thing. And actually, the right thing is to, you know, let themselves be cared for. Um, And and we see that a lot.
2: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. um, You know, there's very strong evidence of this in places such as the state of Oregon in the USA, where a form of assisted suicide is is allowed, is that surveys show consistently that that one of the main reasons that why people give for going for the assisted suicide is fear of being a burden to others. So, so there is a lot of evidence that if once this is legalised, um, many people will feel driven by a sense of of being a burden to their loved ones and their relatives or even to the nhs to feel that the the decent and the honorable thing to do is to kill myself
0: and i worry that um with patients who seemingly have awful you know patients that say are bed bound or have symptoms that we just perceive as as doctors um, or as nurses and doctors that are just unbearable we will feel the need to offer it we need to make sure patients know that it's there Um, but the reality is is patients actually move around medical teams quite a lot in hospital um they see lots of different people so i worry they will get asked repeatedly um and they will hear of other people in the same situation who will end their life and and might feel that we sort of think well why have they not ended theirs you know i'd have done it in their position um and because I think we see that at the beginning of life with some of the laws um, we have where um, we can really impress upon, you know, how we feel, we think we would feel in a situation and can't believe that someone would react differently. And I, I worry that will really change the dynamic between um, patients and staff.
2: Yeah, Tim, you um, did some research, didn't you, in Canada, which uh, legalised um, a form of medical killing, or medical aid in dying, they call it there. And um, what, what was your experience there? Because you you look, did some investigative journalism there, didn't you?
1: It's um, a little generous. <laughs> I did some research, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and if you're interested in this topic, there is actually a whole podcast of matters of life and death from, from October last year, which I recommend you go back and listen to, uh, which talks about um, the experience in Canada. But yeah, that they they legalized uh, what they call medical assistance in dying or made um, back in 2016, I think it was, so about five, six years ago and um at the time, the issue of palliative care was raised and and it was kind of confidently assured that no, no, these two systems could run in parallel and there'd be no reason why palliative care couldn't continue to be invested in as well as having a kind of euthanasia regime running in, alongside it. And then what has happened is what most of the, 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 the critics or indeed many in the palliative care sector warned, which is that inevitably in a state-funded system uh, as you said Sarah you know people will get repeatedly asked and and as that becomes more and more one of the kind of menu of options, um, it's going to increase in prevalence, and so they've seen the numbers kind of steadily rise of people who have who have opted for made year on year, uh, and indeed there is you know limited number of dollars in the system, and and giving someone a lethal injection is significantly cheaper than than providing lengthy complex hospice care over many months, and so even though no one intends to kind of think of it in financial terms, when you have a cash-strapped system, much akin to the NHS, the experience there is that that many of the provinces who administer healthcare in Canada have, have found more of their resources g- going towards MAID because it's cleaner, simpler, efficient, quick. Uh, and that means that there are plenty of people out there who would love to have high quality kind of remedial hospice care at home or, or in, a, in an institution, but they don't. And so their options are kind of suffer in substandard op you know care without specialists like yourself and and high quality pain control or take the kind of quick quick way out which is a choice that no patient should really be given
0: your description of it tim is just so sickening like queen click quick efficient like it's just it's so sad isn't it to 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 think of resources being taken away from palliative care, not being able to care for people as we would want at the end of life um, and not valuing people for who they are, it just listening to you describe it makes me really sad.
2: I think one of the things I found really uh, interesting but also troubling was that the idea that actually... Uh, palliative care and euthanasia could coexist on the same ward. I mean, basically, you could choose, you know, you're you're dying, you've got a terminal illness. Well, you know, if you want palliative care, you know, and you want to carry on being careful, well, we can provide that. But if you decide your life is not worth living, well, we can end your life as well. So so why couldn't um, euthanasia and palliative care coexist in the same ward?
0: I think it goes back to that sense of safety and we talked about the relationship um, and the trust that you really need to have when you are totally vulnerable and the idea that you would be providing both in one ward uh, just seems ridiculous Um, the idea that you know one patient we're trying to help you live as long as possible and the other patient we're ending your life because it's uh, you know the value judgment on that that we're just like yeah yeah it's fine it is you've got pain and it's not worth trying to to beat that um i think it would it will just undermine um trust and confidence and um and take away um time and energy um i think if doctors are making those decisions they will rightly and unexpectedly have to have, uh, I'm sure, second opinions. Uh, there'll be lots of paperwork, lots of checkboxes, I'm sure. And that will, I think, of how the reality of a of ward is run. You know, we do the ward round w- with a consultant. There are jobs to be done for each patient. And I th- can imagine the assisted dying. It's like, well, there's a big legal requirement over this. So we must make sure this is all ticked off rather than that softer thing where it's just sit with the patient um, who's, Who's also unwell, but not going through assisted dying, or maybe spend a bit of time when their relative comes, talking through what's going on. That could be diverted as 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 um, emotional, physical, time, resources all go to assisted dying.
2: Sure. Now I, I I can see that. Let me put you on the spot, Sarah, because you know I've retired from clinical practice. You're still at the early stages of your career. Uh, it seems. Humanly speaking, it's it's quite likely that within the foreseeable future, some form of assisted suicide euthanasia is going to become legalised in the UK. And I wonder how you think uh, you and others might react to that? Um, Do you think it will be possible to create um, euthanasia free zones uh, within the NHS? Uh, what, What are your own thoughts on that possibility?
0: Yeah, I think um, we really need to fight for it to be kept, well, a, for it not to happen, but if it does happen, for it to be kept out of the, I think, out of the healthcare system, I I think patients need to be coming to see their doctor and they know their doctor is not doing assisted dying. I think it's, as, you know, they, they need to know that they are uh, in a safe place and that they're, that They can express um, disappointment and frustration with life and the next sentence isn't going to be, oh, would you like to uh, die by suicide? Um, I would love to see that actually having places where assisted dying isn't allowed would be really promoted um, and um, celebrated that, you know, we have places... As Cicely Saunders originally set up, you know, hospices, where we go, we don't do that here. That's not what we believe in. We believe in you and we believe in supporting you. Um, I fear that to prevent there being a postcode lottery and to be, in quotes, fair to everyone, that actually hospices would be required to do it. And I can't see how that would work. Uh, And I certainly can't see how lots of people, lots of palliative doctors would work in that system. Uh, I certainly... Don't know how
2: I would. I mean, one of the things it reinforces to me is the really imp- important provision of conscience protection for doctors, nurses and other health professionals. That that they are protected uh, by law from being forced to participate, uh, to recommend, to advise patients about uh, killing, uh, assisted dying or, and so on. And... Um, Again, that didn't see, although in theory that conscious protection is there in uh, Canada, uh, Tim, I think your experience was it wasn't necessarily that, always that strong.
1: Yes, I was going to say, unfortunately, the kind of portents from Canada, which, you know, obviously is a different country and a different culture, but I think there's a very similar kind of uh, medical ethos and, and spirit in, in its healthcare system. it, it it, it is the case that the law is passed. Doesn't you cannot be compelled to actually do the the lethal injection yourself, um, but it's really patchy. So I spoke to Canadian doctors, Christians, who in certain provinces. Um, they were basically in conflict with their kind of provincial health board which said you don't have to physically do it but you do have to refer patients when asked and you have to basically be a cog in the machine pushing them towards assisted suicide and and there were doctors who said "Oh, that still contravenes my conscience you know i will say this is an option but i'm not going to refer you you'll have to go to another doctor who does that I, i make it clear from the outset that i don't i don't do MAID and that's been—they've been told that's not an option. That's not permissible. That's if you work in the state-funded provincial healthcare system, you have to take part, which is, I think, yeah, really, really concerning. If if you were a doctor, the other thing I wanted to say, when what you said, Sarah, about the palliative. Um, how it would work with the hospice system is, again, it's very similar because um, the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians came out very strongly against MAID when it was first legalised um, and said it was kind of antithetical to the whole ethos of hospice care to kill patients. But in just a very short space of time, only about five or six years, that's you can see in the statistics, that's great, bad, gradually been worn down. So at the beginning, almost all deaths, uh, nobody died from MAID in hospices. They were either on hospital wards or at home but over time more and more patients got aware that they could ask for this and there was a kind of strong activist pro-euthanasia movement which was attacking doctors and institutions that refused them that that it's kind of been worn down. Um, and uh, the last stats I saw which were only from 2019, so only four years after the law came in, uh, 21% now, so that's one in more than one in five of all deaths uh, from euthanasia were taking place in hospices. Um, so I I agree with you that it's vital that we do keep the system separate, but I have to say the the evidence from other countries is concerning whether that's going to be possible if it is legalised in the UK.
0: I'm really glad we got to talk today about, um, we've been able to talk about palliative care and um, assisted dying. I am a really strong advocate that we need to be focusing on making sure that palliative care is available to all, um, good palliative care is available to all, and... That says a lot more about us as a society if we are passionate about um, supporting people, loving people and helping people have a good death uh, than going for, as Tim decided, the efficient, clean, quick option of saying, oh, we can't help. We'll just go down the assisted suicide route. Um, Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Thanks, Sarah. It's been absolutely brilliant to have your insight and your reflections uh, from the ward itself uh, on, on matters of life and death today. We're really grateful for you taking the time. And thanks to everyone else f- for listening. I hope you enjoyed this pair of podcasts on palliative care with Sarah. Um, uh, as I mentioned, there's a there's a podcast that, that me and John did uh, about six months ago, which was discussing in more detail some of the research I did into Canada and also the, the proposed bill here in the UK uh, on assisted dying so you can look back in the feed and find that um, there's also some material on on john's website uh that's johnwyatt.com. if you just pop in assisted dying you'll be able to find that and i recommend to take a look um as ever if you'd like to get in touch with us uh, we're always interested to hear from listeners um you can drop us an email at molad m-o-l-a-d uh, molad at premier.org.uk um, but otherwise uh, we'll see you next week thanks very much for listening
0: Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.